0: It's the time of year for the spooks and ghouls to crawl out of their dark crevices and into our hearts. Tonight is All Hallows Eve, and you know what that means. We're going to give you a few spooky tales and even more amazing tunes. So sit back, sip your poison, and enjoy the ride. I'm Kalen Capson, and this is the Pagan Place Podcast.
1: Halloween is a time of year dedicated to the dark, obscure, mysterious, and oftentimes horrifying. Typically, this is relegated for fun myths and tall tales. However, the story that I'm about to tell you is anything besides tall. Believe it or not, this is in fact a true story, one that you can verify yourselves with a very simple internet search if you don't believe me. The police reports do in fact exist. So, without further ado, my name is Brett Stackhouse, and this is the very real story of a girl named Kayla. Kayla was an intelligent young woman, in fact, she was attending university. Back in the year of 2010, she was in her senior year at the University of California, Santa Barbara to be exact. Now aside from its academics, the Santa Barbara University was, and still is, somewhat infamous for its rowdy parties, and Kayla, much like most of her fellow classmates, would go and attend these parties. One Friday evening, during her senior year, Kayla and a small group of her friends decided, you know what, it's been a long week, let's go to this party. And so her and her friends went. The party wasn't even that far from Kayla's own apartment, so it was kind of perfect. As the night rang on, Kayla would begin to feel the fatigue of dancing and drinking and, well, partying. Feeling tired, she asked her friends if maybe they wanted to leave a little early, but maybe not so shockingly, they did not want to leave. But that was fine. Remember, her apartment wasn't that far away anyhow. So she said her goodbyes to her friends and set off down the road. Within a matter of mere minutes, she was at her front door, easy peasy. Kayla didn't live alone either. She had two other roommates, both of whom were also seniors at the University of California, Santa Barbara. Her roommates had both elected not to go to the party down the road that evening. They had decided to stay in and have a nice night in with some friends, have some wine, just a casual evening. As Kayla walked inside the apartment, she, by happenstance, turned to the right while she entered the apartment building. It's there that she noticed one of her roommate's friends still lingering about, laying on the sofa along the side wall, with the blankets pulled all the way up to his chin. He was wide-eyed, and as she walked in, the two locked their gazes onto one another. As she walked across the room, she looked back. She now noticed that her roommate's friend had pulled the covers back down lifted his head up and started staring at her, directly at her, in a somewhat menacing way. Kayla got a really weird and bad vibe from this guy, and so she just hustled into her room, thought nothing more of it, and shut her door, locking it. Now, she didn't usually do this, but with the weird vibe, she thought, why not? And within a few moments, she was off, asleep. A few hours would pass by when she would be awoken to the sound of what she assumed to be some tapping along some wood. Being half awake and having had a few drinks earlier that night, she was a bit disoriented. As she gained her consciousness, she began to realize that this tapping sound is someone drumming their fingers along something. In fact, that something was the outside of her bedroom door. She stares at the door in absolute confusion when suddenly the tapping stops. In its place is this eerie sound of someone full on scratching and clawing at her door. She begins to think. Okay, is it my roommate's friend playing some stupid prank? Should I tell him to stop? I'm going to tell him to stop. She sits up, but before she can say anything, the scratching becomes much, much louder, faster, and more violent. This, of course, starts to worry Kayla, so instead of saying anything at all, she pulls out her phone and begins to text one of her roommates. She writes, Hey, will you go in the living room and take care of your friend? He's really pissing me off and he's harassing me being as late as it was she doesn't get any response back and the scratching has by no means stopped so she takes her phone back out and texts her other roommate the exact same message hey will you go in the living room and take care of your friend he's really pissing me off and he's harassing me but again she gets no response and now the scratching has subsided but in its place is this violent jiggling of her doorknob At this point, Kayla is just plain angry, this is clearly a prank, and it's a dumb one at that. So she yells out, hey, stop! But it does nothing. So she decides, fine, I'll just call my roommates and wake them up, whatever. So she pulls her phone out once again and dials, and this time, they answer. Kayla very angrily tells her roommates, hey, come out to the living room and take care of your friend, he's harassing me! Her roommate, in stark contrast, is completely confused. She responds to Kayla by saying, What are you talking about? What friend? And so Kayla rebuttals. The guy that was on the couch. There's a brief pause, and finally her roommate, with fear now in her voice, says, Kayla, we didn't have anyone over last night. Is there somebody out there? Kayla, you need to call the police right now. Without any hesitation, Kayla very calmly tells her roommate, Lock your door immediately it's at this point that Kayla realizes that her doorknob isn't jingling anymore there's no scratching no clawing no thumping she's now horrified and wonders where did this guy go but it wouldn't be but a few seconds later until down the hall she hears this extremely loud banging banging and it's coming from the direction of her two roommates shared room and that sound, was the noise of this stranger in their home trying to break down her roommate's door. Now Kayla's screaming and both of her roommates are absolutely shrieking, but in this utter fear, Kayla somehow manages to dial 911 and before too long, thanks to their location, there is sirens blaring outside and the lights of police vehicles are peering through the windows of the building. At this, Kayla can hear this quick thumping of feet running across the house and the sliding of the back door. This unknown individual had run from the premise once they realized the police had arrived on the scene. The police would come in, searching the building, taking the three girls outside to talk with them. It's then that the officer would come over and show Kayla and her roommates the side door of the apartment. From the outside, there was this overabundance of scratch marks all over the doorknob and around the latch. The police would conclude that he was able to jimmy his way into the apartment through this side door. The police would begin to take statements from the three young women. It was then that Kayla would take one of the officers over to her bedroom door so to demonstrate what had been happening just exactly. It was at this that both the officers and Kayla noticed all the scratch and gouge marks along her bedroom's doorknob and the latch, identical to the one on the side door. On the ground laid a pair of scissors and a knife. The police would tell Kayla what she was already assuming, that the intruder most likely used those objects to break in through the side door and was attempting to do the same to the door to Kayla's room where she, at that time, had been asleep. They would tell Kayla that more likely than not, when she had entered the home, the man was likely in the middle of a burglary or a home invasion of some sort, and that her sudden and unexpected entrance to the apartment most likely scared the man who then attempted to hide on the couch in that dark room, and that when she fell asleep, having seen the man, he was most likely looking to kidnap or harm Kayla so to eliminate any loose ends. Remember, the two had locked eyes twice as this intruder was attempting to hide under the covers on that couch. She was a witness and therefore a target. And had she had not locked her door, they might not be having this exact conversation. And to this day, the man has never once been caught, and he very likely may still be roaming the streets of Santa Barbara.
2: Drink in a bar. Oh, I wanna drink in a bar. I wanna drink in a bar filled with aliens. Buying shots for a guy with lobster eyes. Some guy buys me shots, has a human body and lobster eyes. Oh, I wanna drink in a bar. Oh, I wanna drink in a bar. I want a drink in a bar filled with aliens E.T. is messed up I got to walk him home Ironically E.T. would not phone a cab Oh I want a drink in a bar Oh I want a drink in a bar I want a drink in a bar filled with aliens Me Chewbacca go to open mic. Chewbacca kills a guy who sings sublime. Oh, I wanna drink in a bar. Oh, I wanna drink in a bar. I wanna drink in a bar filled with eight.
3: My sister Erica and I were trying to remember this story. We forget a couple details, but this is what I remember. There is a story told by the children of a particular town, of the woman who went to the store and never made it home. On the way to pick up her bread, milk and butter, her car broke down on the tracks at a railroad crossing, the lights of a locomotive closing fast. The whistle, screaming. In the collision, the woman's legs were severed from her body. When police arrived, only the legs could be found in the wreckage, and the torso was never located. Some time later, two children, Jack and Lacey, were having a campout in their backyard. Their goal was to try to make it all night without running into the house. As they sat by the fire, Jack began to tell the story of the lady. The legend of the lady had grown, and it was now known that you will hear click, clack, slide. Upon hearing this, your only chance for survival was to turn quick and run as fast as you can, because if you don't, the legless lady, dragging her torso with her hands and arms, will grab you by the ankles. She wants your legs. She was a well-known haunt to the people of this town, pursuing children in particular, as her own children never came looking for her after the accident. She was left a wretched, angry soul, seeking retribution from the town. Jack and Lacey's parents interrupted their storytelling to ask them if they wanted to run to the store before sundown to pick up a few items. As a reward, they could also go get marshmallows for their fire, but they had to go there and come straight back before dark. The children shrugged off the story, headed to the store. But on the way back, they both heard the terrifying sound. They ran all the way home, and when they got to the front step, They stopped and looked at each other. After some time, it grew dark. And Jack and Lacey's parents began to worry as the children had not returned. It shouldn't have taken this long to go to the store and back. They decided to drive towards the store and pick them up as they were surely on their way home. And they would cross paths. When they opened the front door, their gaze was met with a blood-soaked welcome mat and a trail of gore leading to the woods. When Jack and Lacey were found, their legs were gone, carried off by the vengeful, child-hating wraith of Click, Clack, Slide. back to the packing place here let me top up that poison for you no no you keep the tip all we need is a little lichen share that'll do just fine there you go have a good day
4: Amongst the teacups and old books you lie A sticker advertising your imagined worth Not garbage, not dear A bauble to be traded, some token to be bartered You are a discard of childhood Once friend, once confidant Sweet companion of innocent dreams Now worn around the edges Now battered, hard-used Left to cool off in corners You wait for new eyes New glances of love, sweet reprieve from the midden heap, a new master's hand to caress your strings, to be bought and paid for. Dance, puppet, dance.
2: Straight
5: So, I'll preface this story by saying that it's usually pretty hard to scare me. Well, okay, that's a lie. There's a lot that I'm scared of, but my point being that it's not often that I find myself feeling really spooked. Uh, But one thing that does freak me out, and if you're anything like me, maybe you know what I'm talking about, is that feeling that you're losing your mind. You know, that feeling that you've somehow lost the plot, no one's taken notice yet, you're just floating in space. Uh, Keep that idea in your mind as I share this story with you. So I'm often prone to really vivid dreams and nightmares, um, but it's usually never anything to write home about. You know, an endless hallway full of spiders here, a psychedelic space epic there, nothing too memorable. Uh, What I'm about to tell you though, I don't think I'll ever forget. It had been a week just like any other, Uh, the only noteworthy detail I really remember is that I'd been having like particularly vivid dreams pretty much every night, uh, which in hindsight was a little weird, Uh, but it was nothing overly memorable, so I didn't think anything of it at the time. So uh, by Friday, when I was getting settled into bed that night, I wasn't really expecting anything out of the ordinary. However, not too long after I felt myself drift off, I found myself uh, waking up again, we'll say, in a whole different bed, in a different house, surrounded by these strange people who didn't look like anybody I knew, but somehow they were all familiar to me. Uh, it, It was like people that I was already acquainted with, people that I was familiar with, but everything was just a little bit different. Uh, And instead of feeling alarmed or confused, I felt weirdly calm. I felt like I knew everybody. I felt like I knew where I was Uh, We even had plans for that day so I Went to the foreign yet strangely familiar uh, kitchen in this house, fixed myself some breakfast. I specifically remember having a really good bagel that was very satisfying. Um, And then myself and the others in the house, we went about a normal day. We uh, went into the city, which looked like no place that I had ever been, uh, but yet somehow I felt like I had lived there for years. Uh, We ran some errands, talked to people, socialized went out to eat, totally normal day. Uh, Then we came back, hung out, conversed, uh, and then I remember we were watching a movie and suddenly, you know, we realized how late it was and we all just kind of started to drift off past that point without even turning the movie off. So again, I woke up having seemingly slept yet again in this strange house that I was sharing with these strange, unfamiliar people still in this, you know, different surroundings, different environment. And I remember the house was really quiet. It seemed like everybody else had already left. Uh, So I got out of bed. I went down to the kitchen and I found a cake and a note saying, oh, like, we didn't want you to miss out. So here, have a slice. You know, we'll all be back after work. And so I thought, okay. And I had myself a slice of the cake. Uh, I specifically remember it being also quite good, quite satisfying. Then I just kind of had a normal day around the house. I watched some television, did some chores, just kind of slumped around the house. And I specifically remember feeling like the, being kind of bored and feeling the hours just kind of drag on as the day went on. Cause I was by myself and started to rain and I remember the sound of the rain against the glass on the windows but you know it seemed like kind of a normal day but after a while you know being bored and stuck inside and not really knowing what else to do I kind of got bummed out so I just kind of laid down on my bed kind of you know tried to drift off so I just laid there and kind of tried to relax Uh, I remember once again you know, hours went by, it got dark, it was nighttime again. Eventually I got tired and started to drift off. I remember just laying on the bed and staring out the window. It was all splattered with rain, seeing just this dim street light outside illuminating the stretch of street that, again, was no place that I had ever actually seen, but it looked and felt somehow familiar. And after a while, I must have drifted off and fell into a dream or something like that because I just remember seeing just kind of the usual like nonsense images and colors that you might see kind of as you're dreaming you know just about to wake up or something and then I remember just my eyes flinging open and I'm looking around and I was confused because now I was in my regular bed in my usual house my normal, usual surroundings. But I still vividly remembered everything that I had done for what felt like the past two days uh, in this strange uh, dream world of sorts. I remember I picked up my phone and checked the time. Um, I'd only been asleep for my usual, like, eight or so hours. And that's when the confusion really set in. I was like, am I crazy? I, what, like, how did I just experience two days worth of life in this strange place when i've only been asleep for eight hours you know how why how do i still remember all of this as if it were actual memories rather than just uh, dreams needless to say as you can imagine i felt particularly insane for the first half hour or so after i woke up weirdly there was almost this kind of sadness at this lack of closure in this Other life, I guess. And I mean, clearly once I got my bearings again, those feelings all started to fade away. But to this day, I still vividly remember so many elements of that. I remember feeling the time pass. I remember eating that food and how good it tasted. I remembered going on all these errands in town. I remembered watching a movie with these strange people. I could probably draw them if I knew how to draw. Again, it's almost as if it were a memory rather than just a dream.
0: I used to work the passenger lift in the Empire Hotel, that big block of building in lines of red and white brick like streaky bacon that stands on the corner. I served my time in the army and got my discharge with good conduct stripes. And how I got the job was in this way. The hotel was a big company affair with a managing committee of retired officers and such, gentlemen with a bit of money and the concern, and nothing to do but fidget about it. And my late colonel was one of them. He was as good of a tempered man as ever stepped when his wheel wasn't crossed. And when I asked him for a job, Mole, he says, you're the very man to work the lift in our big hotel. We've had to give our last man the sack, and you can take his place. I liked my work well enough, and my pay, and kept my place a year. And I should have been there still, if it hadn't been for a circumstance. But don't let me anticipate. Ours was a hydraulic lift. None of them rickety things swung up on Pole Parrot's cage in a well staircase that I shouldn't care to trust my neck to. It ran as smooth as oil, and a child might have worked it. And safe as standing on the ground, instead of being stuck full of advertisements like an omnibus, we'd mirrors in it. And the ladies would look at themselves and pat their hair and set their mouths when I was taking them downstairs dressed for an evening. It was a little sitting room with red velvet cushions to sit on and he'd nothing to do but get into it and he'd float up or flow down light as a bird. All the visitors used the lift one time or another going up or coming down. I was in charge of the lift from noon till midnight. By that time, the theater and the dining out folks had come in and anyone coming in late walked up the stairs for my day's work was done. One of the porters worked the lift till I'd come in for duty in the morning but before 12, there was nothing particular going on, and not much till after 2 o'clock, when it was pretty hot work with visitors going up and down constant, and the electric bell ringing from one floor to another like a house on fire. Then came a quiet spell while dinner was on, and I'd sit down comfortable in the lift and read my paper. Only I mightn't smoke. But nobody else might either. I had to ask American gentlemen to please not smoke in it, it was against the rule. I hadn't so often to tell English gentlemen, they're not like Americans that seemed as if their cigars are glued to their lips. I always noticed faces as folks got into the lift, of a sharp sight and good memory, and none of the visitors needed to tell me twice where to take them. I knew them, and I knew their floor as well as they did themselves. It was in November that Colonel Saxby came to the Empire Hotel. I noticed him particularly because he could see at once he was a soldier. He was a tall, thin man, about 50, with a hawk nose, keen eyes, grey moustache, and walked stiff from a gunshot wound to the knee. But what I noticed most was the scar of a sabre cut across the right side of his face. Colonel Saxby's room was room 210, just opposite the glass door leading to the lift. And every time I stopped on the fourth floor, number 210 stared me in the face. The Colonel used to go up in the lift every day regular. Sometimes, when he was alone in the lift, he'd speak to me. He asked me in what regiment I'd served, and said he knew the officer's in it. But I can't say that he was comfortable to talk to. There was something standoffish about him, and he always seemed deep in his own thoughts. He never sat down in the lift. Whether it was empty or full, he stood bolt upright under the lamp, where the light fell on his pale face and scarred cheek. One February, I didn't take the colonel up in the lift, and it was regular as clockwork, I noticed it, but I suppose he'd gone away for a few days and thought no more about it. Whenever I stopped on the fourth floor, door 210 was shut, and, as he often left it open, I made sure the colonel was away. At the end of the week, I heard the chambermaid say that Colonel Saxby was ill. So thinks I. That's why he hasn't been in the lift lately. It was a Tuesday night, and had an uncommonly busy time of it. It was one stream of traffic up and down, and so it went the whole evening. It was on the strike of midnight that I was about to put the light on the lift, lock the door, and leave the key in the office for the man in the morning when the electric bell rang out sharp. I looked at the dial, saw I was wanted on the fourth floor. It struck 12 as I stepped into the lift. As I passed the second and third floors, I wondered who might be that rung so late and thought it must be a stranger that didn't know the rule of the house. But when I stopped on the fourth floor and flung the door open of the lift, Colonel Saxby was standing there wrapped in a military cloak. The door of his room was shut behind him, for I read the number on it. I thought he was ill in his bed, and ill enough he looked, but he had his hat on, and what could a man that had been in bed ten days want with going out in a winter midnight? I don't think he saw me, but when I had set the lift in motion, I looked at him standing under the lamp, with the shadow of his hat hiding his eyes, and the light full on the lower part of his face. It was deadly pale, and the scar on his cheek was showing still paler. "'Glad to see you're better, sir,' said I. But he said nothing, and I didn't like to look at him again. He stood like a statue with his cloak about him, and I was downright glad when I opened the door of the lift to let him out into the hall. I saluted as he got out, and he went past me towards the front door. "'The colonel wants to go out,' I said to the porter, who stood staring, and opened the door, and Colonel Saxby walked out into the snow. "'That's a weird go,' he said. "'It is,' said I. "'I don't like the colonel's looks. "'He doesn't seem himself at all. "'He's ill enough to be in his bed, and there he is, going out on a night like this. "'Anyhow, he's got a famous cloak to keep him warm,' I say. "'And as we spoke, there came a loud ring at the doorbell. "'No more passengers for me,' I said, and I was really putting the light out this time when Joe opened the door and two gentlemen entered that I knew at a glance were doctors one was tall and the other was short and stout and both came to the lift sorry gentlemen it's against the rule for me to go up after midnight nonsense said the stout gentleman it's only just past 12 and a matter of life or death take us up at once to the fourth floor they were in the lift like a shot so he went up when I opened the door they walked straight to number 10 A nurse came out to meet them, and the stout doctor said, No change for the worse, I hope. And I heard her reply, The patient has died five minutes ago, sir. Though I had no business to speak, I followed the doctors to the door and said, There's some mistake here, gentlemen. I took the colonel down in the lift since the clock struck twelve, and he went out. The stout doctor said sharply, A case of mistaken identity. It was somebody else you took for the colonel. Begging your pardon, gentlemen, it was the Colonel himself, and the night porter that opened the front door for him knew him as well as me. He was dressed for a night like this, with his military cloak wrapped around him. Step in and see for yourself, said the nurse. I followed the doctor into the room, and there lay Colonel Saxby, looking as I had just seen him a few minutes before. There he lay, dead as his forefathers, and the great cloak spread about him over the bed. I never slept that night. I sat up with Joe, expecting every minute to hear the colonel ringing the front doorbell. Next day, every time the bell for the lift rang sharp and sudden, a sweat broke out on me and I shook again. I felt as bad as I did the first time I was in action. Me and Joel told the manager all about it, and he said we have been dreaming. The colonel's coffin was smuggled into the house the next night. Me and the manager and the undertaker's men took it up in the lift. They carry it to number 210. And while I waited for them to come out again, a weird feeling came over me, and the door opened softly. Four men carried out the long coffin straight across the passage and set it with his foot towards the door of the lift. "'I can't do it, sir,' I said. "'I can't take the colonel down again. I took him down at midnight yesterday, and that was enough for me.' "'Push it in,' said the manager, speaking short and sharp. Before he closed the door, he said, "'Mole, you've worked this lift for the last time, it strikes me.' And I had for I wouldn't have stayed in the Empire Hotel after what had happened, not if they doubled my wages and me and the Night Porter left together.
2: This is Matt from the Northern Arm, and you are listening to Bacon Place Podcast.